Mark chapter 6. Earlier in this chapter, Mark has told us that the training of the twelve progressed to the point where Jesus was able to send out the twelve on a, a mission, a preaching mission. And he told them to preach what was his message, repent. But in order to validate the truthfulness of their message and to prove that it was from God, he gave them the power to work miracles and to cast out demons. We read in Mark 6 and verse 13, And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And then Mark takes a digression from this to talk about Herod and John the Baptist. It's a digression, but it's related. You see, when Herod learned about the works that Jesus was doing and the miracles being done by his disciples, Herod was convinced that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And Mark tells us here the account of how Herod had John arrested and later unjustly, wickedly executed. And so when he saw the miracles being done by Jesus and the disciples, he was convinced by his guilty conscience, this must be John risen from the dead. You know, there's a proverb that says, the wicked flee when no man pursues. We flee because our conscience is pursuing us. And Herod's conscience was troubling him because he knew that what he had done was wrong and led him to that fearful but actually faulty conclusion. It wasn't John the Baptist. It was Jesus and his disciples. But after Mark finishes telling the story of how John came to be put to death by Herod, he returns to Jesus and the apostles. And our text this morning is verses 30 to 34. Let me read that. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, literally when he went out, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I want to draw three points out of this passage. We want to look at our accountability to Christ, the compassion of Christ, and then what I'm calling fulfillment in Christ. First, our accountability to Christ. Verse 30, the apostles, having gone out on this missions trip, this ministry venture, gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, first note that they had been commissioned by Christ. Only here in the Gospel of Mark are the the twelve called apostles, And it's very fitting that it be here because the word apostle, you may know, simply comes from the Greek word apostolos, and it means a sent one. And here they were being literally sent out on this mission, and so they're here, the only time in Mark, called apostles. It was a trial mission. It was a preparatory mission. Eventually, when Jesus would go back to heaven, he would send them out into the whole world without him. He sent them out with his authority. 
his mantle of authority upon them. We read in Matthew 10, 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Luke 10, 16, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. These men were not going out on their own authority. They were not religious entrepreneurs. They were not freelancers. They were going out under the commission of Christ and with the authority of Christ. Therefore, because they were commissioned by Jesus, they were accountable to Jesus. And that's what we see here in verse 30. They came back, they gathered together, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. They were accountable to him in that they were doing what he commanded them to do. He told them where to go. He told them where to stay. He told them what to bring and what not to bring. He told them what message to preach, which was his message, the message of repentance. They were accountable in going out, and now they are accountable to report back to him as they return from this mission for his review, for his approval, and maybe his correction. This is what the military, or maybe in business, they might call a debriefing. A debriefing is, after a mission, or after a, a project, people get together who are involved, and they review what were our goals. Did we achieve our goals? If so, why? If we failed, why did we fail to re re achieve our goals? And going forward, what do we need to stop doing? What do we need to start doing? What do we need to continue doing? That's a debriefing. And as the apostles come back to Jesus, you can kind of hear their enthusiasm. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. You can imagine a, a, a child coming back from summer camp, excited about what he or she did and reporting to, to the parents and the parents, of course, are listening intently and entering into the joy and enthusiasm of the child as to how they enjoyed and what they did at summer camp. But maybe as wise parents, tempering them a little bit, you know, uh, reviewing with them, you know, what happened and maybe giving them some, some insight, some wisdom, warning them about certain dangers. Well, Jesus here was like a wise father as his sons come back and report what they had said and done and he's going to give them a review. Now, lest you think I'm just imagining that, we do have an account of when the 70 returned to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. You need not turn there, but I'm reading from Luke 10, 17. When later he sent out 70 disciples, they came back to him. Listen to the interchange between Jesus and the disciples. I think it gives us a clue to what this interchange would have been. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. You hear what Jesus does? He gives them some affirmation. He enters into their joy over Satan being subject to them, but then he tempers it a little bit. Well, don't rejoice so much in that. There's something greater to rejoice in. So we can think of the blessing it would have been to these apostles as they came back, returned to Jesus, and reported to him. 
there would have been the satisfaction of meeting with the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having Jesus say to them, Philip, well done. Peter, that was good. John, John, you did well there. How that must have delighted them, because that's what they wanted, right? To hear from their master, well done. And there would have been affirmation from the Lord Jesus. There would have been some counsel and guidance. Lord, we we faced this particular situation. We came to this town and we just weren't sure what to do. And Jesus would have given them guidance. Well, brothers, men, this is what you should have done. And then there would have been the benefit, although painful, of maybe some gentle and loving correction. John says, Jesus, you know, when we came to this house and Peter blurted out, Peter, you really said that? Come on, Peter. That was not wise. And they would have had to deal with some correction, maybe, as they told on each other and reported some of the missteps they made. And then there would be the value of further instruction in sound doctrine and proper conduct and encouragement for future endeavors. And so we see the apostles accountable to Christ. They're commissioned by Christ and they're accountable to him. And they give this report to him. Now, brothers and sisters, what can we learn from this? Well, the same Jesus is alive today at the right hand of the Father. And I ask the question, is Jesus still sending out men in his name? Well, he is. Not apostles. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And if anybody in our day claims to be an apostle, it's a fraud. Right? He's a charlatan. There are no apostles anymore. He's not sending out apostles in that capital A sense. But is he still sending out men to preach and to shepherd? Yes, he is. Ephesians 4.11 says that the ascended Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers. He is sending people out as evangelists, we would call missionaries. He is sending men out as pastor teachers to shepherd flocks. He's still commissioning people. And they're still accountable to him. Hebrews 13, 17, which I mentioned last week, obey your leaders, submit to them, they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. As a shepherd of souls, I will give an account to the chief shepherd. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 to elders, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And turn with me briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We see another passage which speaks to the accountability that men like myself, pastors, elders, leaders in churches, the accountability that we will face in the final day. It's, it's, a, it's a fearful passage. 1 Corinthians three eleven. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. My pastoral work will someday come under the review of the Lord Jesus. And what I have said and what I have done 
will be evaluated and some will be gold, silver, precious stones, well done, servant. And others could be wood, hay, and stubble and burned up. There will be an account given to men like me, of men like me, to the chief shepherd. But do we have to wait to the final day to have that accounting? And do we need to relegate this accountability to only when Jesus was on the earth? Well, I say not. I say not. But even now, I and other servants of Christ need to be reporting to him and coming under his review as I seek him in his word and prayer. And I come before the, the, the chief shepherd reviewing what I have said, what I have done, decisions I've made regarding the flock of God and the people of God. I have that privilege and I have that responsibility. Sometimes maybe receiving affirmation and approval from him. And Jesus saying to me through the word and through my own conscience, well done, you did well here. And maybe at other times, having the chief shepherd say to me through my conscience, you didn't do that well. You sinned. You messed up here. You didn't represent me well here. Hopefully bringing me to repentance and leading me to change. And as I come regularly before the Lord to receive direction and guidance from him as to how to speak and how to act and how to respond and how to react and what decisions to make going forward. And to receive from the, the, the chief shepherd fresh strength and courage and boldness and grace to act as he would. So this experience of accountability to Christ for his servants is not something that needs to be relegated to the past when Jesus was on the earth. Nor projected into the future at the end of time when we will all give account to God. I should be bringing my work before him regularly, if not daily, for his review, for his approbation and affirmation, or for his correction and reproof. But brothers and sisters, does this need to apply only to pastors and evangelists or missionaries? I don't think so. I think we may safely extrapolate to all the people of God. All of you are the people of God who trust in Jesus. All of you have gifts and callings from the Lord that you seek to exercise in his name and by his power and for his glory. And isn't it a good thing for each of you to come before the Lord and bring your life and your ministry under his review and to ask him, Lord, how am I doing? How is my service for you going? How am I using the gifts you've given me? How am I doing in the callings you've given me as a husband, as a wife, as a, a father, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a workman in the workplace, as a student, as a brother, as a sister, as a witness to the world? And to ask the question, Lord, with what in me are you pleased? But also to ask, Lord, with what in me are you currently displeased? And then to get his answer, 
not an audible voice from heaven, but to get his answer from his word and by his Holy Spirit in your own heart and conscience as he comes to you with a still small voice or maybe at times with a louder voice and then to take to heart what he is saying. Brothers and sisters, doesn't it stand to reason that the more conscientiously we report to Christ frequently in this life, the better it is likely to go for us in the final day when we stand before him to give an account, hoping to receive, as we all do, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we have accountability to Christ. It doesn't only apply to the twelve. It applies to preachers and missionaries today, but I submit it applies to all of us. Bring your life under Jesus' review daily, regularly. But now let's, let's look at the compassion of Christ. First, I want to know Christ's sympathy toward the apostles. Verse 31. They come back, they report all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going. They did not even have time to eat. Notice Jesus' sympathy toward his apostles. At this point, there were a number of pressures upon them. First of all, they had just gotten back from this very strenuous mission. Remember, they had walked on foot. They had preached. It would have been physically demanding to them. They were going out without Jesus. They weren't under the wing of the mother hen. They were doing that on their own. That would be rather fearful and apprehensive. They were going out dealing with people, facing opposition. And then there was, in the back of their minds, Herod has arrested John the Baptist, the forerunner to our, to our Lord. What's in it for me? Is he out for me? And there would have been fears haunting them because of the dangers that were out there. And Jesus was not unmindful of the pressures that they were under. And he says, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. Many people coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat. On top of all of that, there was the constant press of the crowd, wave after wave of people coming to them and making demands upon Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus said, come away and rest for a while. And it says, they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Jesus was mindful of their stresses. Jesus is not a hard taskmaster. His yoke is easy. Remember that Jesus is not only fully God, but Jesus is fully, was and is fully man himself. He knew what it was to live as a, as a human being with all the weaknesses of humanity. Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He knew what it was to be bone tired. He sits down at the well of the woman of Samaria and he's tired. And he says, give me a drink. He knows what it is to be thirsty. Remember how in chapter 1 he had a busy night ministering to people and in the morning he goes out to be alone with his father. He needed some alone time with his father. And so... In his sympathy, Jesus purposes to pull his disciples away from the crowd and give them an opportunity to rest. 
The word secluded can be translated wilderness, lonely, uninhabited, desolate place. Rest means to cease from labor in order to recover and collect strength, to be refreshed. And so he purposes to take them away from the work, to give them some R&R, going to a lonely place. You know, when you work with people especially, sometimes you need to physically and geographically remove yourself from their demands. And Jesus understood that. So let's pause here and learn from Jesus in taking his weary disciples away to rest. What does it tell us? Friends, it tells us something about our God. And of course, Jesus is the exact representation of God. We need to understand that our God and our Savior is knowledgeable of and he's sympathetic with our weaknesses. He knows that we are body as well as spirit. He knows, as was read this morning, just in the providence of God, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He knows that we're just clay pots. Listen to what it says of God the Father in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 and verses 13 and 14. A good picture of the compassion of God the Father Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. You want to see a beautiful instance of it? Turn in your Bibles back for a moment to 1 Kings. If you can find 1 Kings in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 19. Remember the battle that the prophet Elijah had with 450 prophets of Baal. It was the time for Israel to decide. If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal, serve him. And so there's this great face-off. It's, it's uh, you know, high noon there in Israel. 450 prophets of Baal crying out to their false gods, cutting themselves with stones. And Elijah alone calling upon the true God of Israel to make himself known as the true God. Calling, asking him to call down fire on an altar that has been doused three times with water. And God answers from heaven and his fire comes and consumes the altar. And then Elijah orders the 450 prophets to be taken down to the brook Kishon where he slays them. Tremendous output of physical, emotional, and mental energy. And after that, Elijah is wiped out. He's downright depressed. He's almost suicidal. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, we read, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Imagine, The man who singly stood against 450 prophets of Baal, calling upon the God of heaven. Uh, Just tremendous courage. And now he says, Lord, just take my life. He's just wrung out. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head 
a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Do you see the heart of our God toward his faithful but weary servant? He puts him to sleep. It's like, Elijah, things will look better in the morning. You know how it is, some of you, maybe some women in particular, your mind is racing at night, all kinds of fears, right? And a loving husband will say, honey, just go to sleep. Things will look better in the morning. Well, that's what the father does with his servant. He gives him food. He gives him some water to drink. He refreshes him. He doesn't rebuke him. He has just upheld his honor and his name in Israel. And the father deals very gently, very sensitively with his faithful but weary servant, Elijah. And ah, the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Remember earlier on, he raises the 12-year-old girl from the dead. And then of all things, he says, give her something to eat. He's sensitive to this very mundane, practical need after doing this amazing, astounding miracle. Oh, by the way, she's going to need something to eat. So we learn something about our God and our Savior. How sensitive they are. He is to us in our weaknesses. We also learn something about our responsibility to ourselves, brothers and sisters. Consider this. Jesus recognized that his men, while he sent them out to work, they also needed to rest. They needed to rest from the tedious demands of their work. If Jesus recognized that need in his men, do we not have to recognize that in ourselves? Is that not a message for us, not to drive ourselves so hard that we never take a break? We never refresh ourselves. Masochism like that may appear to be spiritual, but it's really unlike Jesus. And if you are such a person who tends to drive yourself, you need to ask some questions as to why that is. And here are some possibilities. Some of us can be guilty of a prideful perfectionism where everything has to be perfect and we drive ourselves to distraction trying to make things perfect. We want to do things well and excellent, but you're not perfect and God doesn't expect perfection from you. In other cases, we have a performance-based works righteousness. We think we have to work, 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 do, do, do to please God and we don't understand his grace. Maybe in other cases, we have a a, a pride of uh, thinking too highly of ourselves, that we're indispensable. And if I don't do it, it's not going to be done well. And so we can't delegate it to anybody else. We have to do it all. Because if if I don't do it, it's not going to be done right. And we have this pride, thinking of too highly of ourselves. You remember Moses, I... For time's sake, I won't turn to the passage, but back in Exodus 18, Moses is working, overworking himself. All these people are coming to him. And his father-in-law Jethro sees it, and he, he, he corrects Moses. Moses, you're, you're making yourself weary. Let me give you some counsel. And he basically says, Moses, you take the main issues, but I want you to find 70 men in whom is the Spirit of God and delegate to them the lesser issues. Because otherwise you're going to wear yourself out. And Moses wisely takes that counsel. And so there's a need recognized by our Lord for us to develop a healthy rhythm 
between work and rest, work and recreation, work and leisure. Isn't that why God has given us a pattern of six days work and one day rest? We need to honor that pattern and not drive ourselves to the point of burnout in not honoring God. I think it was Robert Merrick McShane, died at age 29, and he said this, God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride. I've killed the horse, and I can no longer deliver the message. And the horse was himself. Now, let me be quick to say that while we take a rest from work, we don't take a rest from Jesus. Jesus was taking them with him. And we have to be careful. Yeah, we need a break from work. But we never need a break from Jesus. We're going away in a couple of days to California. We'll be there a while. Um, I need to work hard to maintain my devotional life when I'm outside my routine. Because we want to take a break from work, but we never want to take a a break from Jesus. We always want to be communing with him. They were not called to, to take a break from him, only from their labor. And let me say one more thing following J.C. Ryle, who says some people need the spur more than they need the bridle. And if that's you, if you're one of those people, your problem is not you're working too hard, your problem is you're working too little. Well, don't let anything I say fuel your indolence or laziness. If you need the spurs more than the bridle, then you need to step it up and ratchet it up in terms of your hard work. But when we're working hard, we also need to take a break from that work and be refreshed. And um, we not only learn to do that for ourselves, but one final application, we need to take responsibility for others. Would you be like Jesus in all your ways? He had a sympathetic concern that his disciples not be overworked. And if you're in a position as an employer, you need to apply this to your relationship to your employees. Work them hard, but don't overwork them. Be aware that they have families, and you don't want their work to impinge upon healthy family life. You want to be sensitive to your workers and make sure that they're working hard, but also having times of refreshment. It applies to us as parents, doesn't it? to know the frame of your children, to understand their capacity, to work them hard, to train them how to work because it's not going to be natural, but to not overwork them and to make sure you're giving them breaks in their schedule to play and to be refreshed. We need parental wisdom to have that rhythm of work and play. And then finally, to you as fathers, husbands rather, um, If your wife is one spending time all day with the children and she's up to her eyeballs and dirty dishes and dirty diapers and and she's talking toddler talk all day, when you come home from work, you need to be sensitive to her. She needs a break. Maybe you take the kids, let her go out for a quiet time. And don't forget, husbands, to date your wives. I hope you all do that as husbands. You don't stop dating your wife when you marry her. Continue to date her and remind her that amid the dirty dishes and the dirty diapers that she is still your beautiful lover. And take her out on a date on a regular basis. But now 
still under Christ's compassion. We see his compassion toward his disciples, their need for rest. Let's look at Christ's compassion for the crowd in verses 33 and 34 of Mark 6. That same compassion of Jesus is extended to the crowd. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Jesus' compassion for the crowd. Even though he had a bad experience in his hometown of Nazareth, the people of the villages of Galilee were still thronging to him. And here's the picture. They see Jesus get in a boat. This is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is getting in a boat, and he's going to go four miles by sea to a desolate place. They see where he's going, and some of them literally follow on foot, which would have been a ten-mile trek for them on foot, four miles by boat. They, they so want to be with Jesus, and that's why they're trying to get away, right? We can't get away from this multitude. And even when they're trying to get away by boat, they're trekking it ten miles to, to try to connect with them. Now, it appears here that Jesus and his disciples had no time to rest. When you read the text in my translation, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. But if we look, and I won't take the time, if you look at the parallel in John, and by the way, yeah, if you look at the parallel in the Gospel of John, it says this, in John 6, 3, that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So they took the boat to a desolate place and they went up on a, a mountain and he did have some time alone with his disciples. But wait a minute, it says here, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. It sounds as though they didn't have any time to be alone. But John says, you know, they went up on the mountain and sat down with his disciples. And then, so how do you reconcile that? Well, it's a translation issue. My version says when they went ashore. The King James and the New King James is a little more accurate. When they came out. And so how do you put it together? They landed. They went up on a mountain. They had some time together. When they came out from that solitude, he saw the multitude. So they did have some time together. But Jesus comes out of that time and he sees this large crowd that has gathered. What was his response? Well, what is your response when your time of, of um, you know, relaxation, when your time of leisure is interrupted? How do you respond? Irritation? Annoyance? Anger? That was not Jesus' response. He saw the crowd that had followed. They trekked 10 miles to get there. And it says that he was moved. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. I want to say a couple things about the compassion of our Lord. And by the way, of all the emotions of Jesus, the one that is prominent in the Gospels is his compassion. First, we want to note about the compassion of Jesus, that it is holy compassion. All of the emotions of Jesus were holy emotions. They were pure emotions. That's not so with us. Jesus never suffered from the disintegration of the fall so that his emotions, his feelings were out of whack with reality. Oftentimes, you know, we have fear and worry and it ends up being groundless. It's not in line with reality. 
at times we love things that are, we shouldn't love, and we are repelled by things that are good. At times we feel guilty when we are not guilty. We feel shame when there is no shame. Our emotions are often out of whack with reality. Not so Jesus. He never suffered the disintegration of the fall. He was perfectly integrated. So his emotions were always in line with his thinking. His thinking was always in line with reality. And so I say his emotion of compassion was pure. What was it rooted in? It was rooted in a correct view of reality. Jesus was there in the beginning when his father made everything in its pristine purity. He was the co-creator and he saw the beauty and the perfection of it. And when he landed on earth, it must have impacted him far more than it would ever impact us to see the ravages that sin had wrought. He remembers the pristine purity of the original creation and now it was all messed up. And in particular, he realized that now there were a class of men who were so hardened in their hearts that in the name of religion, they were oppressing the people of God. They were calling themselves shepherds, but instead of feeding the people with the soul-nourishing and the soul-liberating Word of God, they were feeding them with the soul-destroying traditions of men. And they were leading them into misery and destruction rather than into the green pastures of God's truth and ultimately into the house of the Lord forever. And his compassion was stirred when he looked at these people, ignorant, sheep without a shepherd, ignorant, blind, lost, because they have blind guides as shepherds. His compassion was holy. His compassion was practical or active. Jesus' emotions were never just feelings. They didn't stop as sentiment. He didn't say, oh, I feel so badly for you. Go in peace, be warmed and fed and taught. No, when he, what he perceives with his holy mind and feels with his holy emotions, his holy will kicks into gear and he does something about it. He saw the disciples were, were weary and he took them apart. He sees that there's a crowd who are sheep without a shepherd. They're ignorant, they're blind, they're bound with traditions and he did something about it. He taught them. He taught them the truth about himself. He fed them with the word of God. Pastor Al Martin had a beautiful description of how Jesus' emotions were never just feelings, but they always translated into action. Listen to this. He says, Jesus' emotions, he said, Jesus never sat in a hot tub of internal emotions, but let it become the steam to drive the wheels of appropriate action. Never sat in a hot tub of emotions, internal emotions, but let it become the steam to drive the wheels of appropriate action. And what did he do in this case? He taught them. He taught them the truth that the tradition-bound Pharisees were not teaching them. What should we do with the compassion of Jesus here? Well, if anybody's an unbeliever, please see Jesus for who he is. He's compassionate. And in his compassion, he wants to teach you He wants to teach you the truth. He wants to teach you the way to God. And what is the way to God? He is the way to God. Why do we need the way to God? Because we've lost our way. We've turned to our own way. And we need to get back to God. And Jesus presents himself as the way, the truth, and the life. How is he the way to God? Well, 
The thing that keeps us from God is our sin. We've done wrong and God is holy and he can't receive our sin into his presence. Jesus came to die for our sins so that if we put our trust in him, God puts our sin on Jesus and gives us his righteous record so that we can be accepted by God. If you're an unbeliever, see that Jesus is compassionate as a shepherd and he wants to teach you the way to God and he is the way to God. And then for us as believers, we're called to walk as Jesus walked. Well, therefore, we're called to walk in compassion. And specifically, his compassion kicked in when he saw sheep without a shepherd. Now, is that your response when you see God's people who are not being shepherded? Well, the first thing to do is, in light of the message last week, is you need to get yourself under shepherds, right? You're not going to have compassion for people who are unshepherded if you're not shepherded yourself. And remember how we said that every Christian needs to be part of a fold, accountable to some human shepherds under their care. So the first thing is to make sure you're under shepherds who are under Christ. But then when you look at people who are being taught error in heretical churches, there may be God's people, but they're not being shepherded with the truth of God. Do you have compassion for them? Do you want to lead them into a healthier place? And with our unbelieving friends, do we see them as sheep without a shepherd? They're goats without a shepherd. Do you want to, you want to lead them to the good shepherd, Jesus, by sharing the gospel with them? So we see accountability to Christ. We see the compassion of Christ. Finally, and more briefly, fulfillment in Christ. What do I mean by fulfillment in Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, there are a couple of themes in this passage which are major biblical themes that find fulfillment in Jesus. One of them is the theme of rest. You see Jesus saying, come apart and rest for a while. He's, he's promising his disciples rest. Well, rest is one of the great themes of the Bible. You remember that God instituted under the Old Covenant a Sabbath day, which was a day of rest, a day of ceasing from labor after six days of work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may, may refresh themselves. God instituted a Sabbath day, which was a day of rest. Every seven years under the Jewish economy, there was a sabbatical year in which the land was to be given rest. It was to lie fallow. Give it a break. Rest refers in the scriptures to the promise of God to bring them into a land where they will find rest. The promised land, the land of Canaan, where they will be secure and safe and prosperous. We find Joshua 1.13 where we have reference to that promise of rest in the land. Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. And then the psalmist speaks of this rest in Psalm 95. Reading from Psalm 95, beginning at verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. Remember how 
For 40 years, they had to wander in the wilderness and not enter the rest. They would die, their corpses would die in the wilderness. They would not enter the land of rest, the land of promise. Well, the writer to Hebrews picks up this theme of rest in Hebrews chapter 3 and note the application that he makes, beginning at Hebrews 3 and verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, this is Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom he did, did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they did also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. What the writer to Hebrews is doing is saying, just like they didn't believe God and they didn't enter the land of Canaan, you make sure that you believe what? Jesus and the gospel so that you will enter into salvation rest in him and eternal rest in him. The point is, with this great theme of rest, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Remember how he said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of rest. Jesus is also the fulfillment of this other theme, the shepherd theme. The shepherd theme comes out in Numbers where Moses is about to die and he says to God, God, there needs to be some replacement to lead me into, to lead the people into the land so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord says, take Joshua, the son of Nun, and lay your hand on him. Joshua would be the one who would lead the people into the promised land. You know what Joshua means? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it's Jesus. Jesus is Joshua. Joshua is Jesus. And as Joshua led the people into the promised land of Canaan, Jesus is the new covenant Joshua who leads us into the heavenly land of promise. I don't have time, but in Ezekiel 34, God is indicting the shepherds of Israel because they were not being faithful. He says of them that the people are like sheep without a shepherd in Ezekiel 34 because the sheep were scattered for lack of a shepherd and became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. They were not feeding the flock, they were feeding themselves. They were using the sheep for their own ends. They were slaughtering the fat sheep. They were not protecting the flock from predators. They were allowing the flock to be scattered. They were not bringing back the scattered. They were not seeking lost sheep. They were not protecting the sheep from one another, is another indictment in Ezekiel 34. You know what God does? He says, because the shepherds of Israel have not been faithful shepherds, they've not been feeding the flock, they've been feeding themselves, they've been... been, wreaking destruction upon the sheep, I myself will step in 
And he says, I will feed them in a good pasture. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost, bring back the broken and strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. God says, they're not being shepherds to my people. I'm going to step in and be the shepherd. How? I close with two verses. Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Who was the shepherd that he was calling in to shepherd the flock rightly? King David had long since died. This is a reference to the greater son of David, Jesus. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. The whole message of the Bible is about him. He said to his enemies, search the scriptures. You think in them you have eternal life. They are they that testify of me. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the supper, let's turn in our songbooks to... Help me out.